crash. Jesus is journeying towards Jerusalem. When he gets there, he's going to be crucified. Jesus already knows that. And he's working to prepare his disciples for what's ahead. After his death and resurrection, they are going to be carrying on his work. And in recent weeks, as we've continued through Luke's gospel, we've seen Jesus teaching and training his disciples. Last week, he taught them about loving God. We saw that at least part of what it means to love God involves listening to him and talking to him. And we looked at the model prayer Jesus gave his disciples. We know it as the Lord's Prayer. Now in our passage this morning, Jesus turns from his disciples towards the crowds, from the committed to the uncommitted. So turn with me to Luke 11, if you haven't already turned there. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 14 through to 36. In the Church Bible, it's page 1042. And our passage this morning divides into two halves. The first half tells us that when it comes to Jesus, we must choose a side. Neutrality is impossible. Then the second half of our passage tells us that we have no excuse for failing to choose correctly. And we'll find that each half gives us two pictures that Jesus uses to make his point. So first of all, then in verses 14 to 26, we must choose a side. Neutrality is impossible. And the first picture Jesus gives us is the strong man teaching us that there are only two sides and only one winning side. Have a look at Luke 11, verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him, by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom, kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. He who is not with me is against me. 
and he who does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus drives out a demon, and the crowd are amazed. But that doesn't mean they accept Jesus' message. It doesn't mean they accept him as their king. No, some of them, verse 16, ask for a sign from heaven, as if what they've just seen isn't enough of a sign from heaven. Jesus will speak to that section of the crowd further on in our passage. But here he responds to those who are mentioned for us in verse 15. Some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. We don't know exactly where the name Beelzebub came from, but we do know it was a way of referring to Satan, the devil, or as they call him here, the prince of demons. So this section of the crowd see this display of power from Jesus, and they explain it by saying, yes, we can see there's power at work here, but we don't believe Jesus himself actually has power. No, somehow he's able to convince one evil spirit to get rid of another. So they're suggesting Jesus is nothing more than a spiritual deal maker. He can play off one demon against another. And of course, if that were true, he would be nothing more than a magician, able to dazzle the crowds, but not able to truly set people free. And actually, this reaction is just a clever attempt to avoid taking Jesus seriously. Yes, yes, very impressive. He can do great tricks. We'll come to see him again. We find him interesting. But we won't worship him as our king. We're going to be neutral spectators. Verse 17 tells us Jesus knew their thoughts. And his response is, don't be ridiculous. Your explanation of what's going on doesn't hold up. Look at the middle of verse 17. Any kingdom, kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? In other words, you are being naive about Satan. He and his henchmen are not a bunch of squabbling idiots. They're far too clever for that. They're too focused for that. They know they'll get nowhere unless they're united. Jesus says, you need to understand you can't turn one demon against another. So then, Jesus says, if Satan and his demons are a united force, and if I'm driving out demons, it can only mean that God's power is at work. And, verse 20, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Jesus' point is there are only two sides, Satan's or God's. There are only two kingdoms, Satan's or God's. You cannot be neutral. You're in one kingdom or the other. You're on one side or the other. And then Jesus gives this provocative picture of a strong man in his house in verse 21. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. He's talking about Satan. The uncommitted crowds haven't been taking him seriously enough. 
They've been viewing him like someone who's on call to do party pieces. But Jesus says, don't be so naive. Satan is a strong man, and he's single-minded. He's on a mission. His mission is to hold on to what he has, to guard his house and his possessions. And here's the provocative part. Jesus is telling this crowd, you are Satan's possessions. You think you're being neutral, but you're blind to reality. The reality is, Jesus says, you're in the strong man's house. You're under armed guard. You think you're free, autonomous, the captains of your own souls. But you're wrong. Satan owns you. You're in his kingdom. The point is, no one has to choose Satan's side. They're automatically on his side, whether they know it or not. But Jesus isn't finished. He's mentioned one strong man, and now he goes on in verse 22. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. These crowds have just seen Jesus driving out a demon. They should realize that he is the stronger strong man. When it comes to power and authority in this world, there are only two sides and only one winning side. These crowds are prisoners. They have no hope of overpowering the strong man who's guarding them. Only Jesus has the power to do that. He's the stronger strong man who sets captives free from Satan's power. He did that in a decisive way through his death and resurrection. Colossians says that by the cross... Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities, triumphing over them. That's a reference to spiritual powers and authorities. When Jesus died and rose again, no human government fell. But Satan's hold on this world was broken. The cross enabled an exodus out of slavery to Satan. But this toppling of Satan has already begun here during Jesus' earthly ministry. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tells his disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's the same picture he's using here. Satan is the strong man guarding his kingdom. But the gates of his kingdom aren't strong enough to withstand Jesus' power. The doors of Satan's prison can't prevail against Jesus' power. They can't keep him out. Jesus can set free those who are held in Satan's power. There are only two powers in the universe, but they are not equal powers. Luke chapter 4 records an early sermon that Jesus preached. In it, he set out his agenda. His agenda is freedom for the prisoners and released for the oppressed. He not only aims to do it, he has divine power to do it. He's still doing it today. There are only two sides and only one winning side. So the challenge comes in verse 23. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Someone has said there is no fence to sit on. 
That's clear from the picture we've just seen. Those who aren't in God's kingdom are in Satan's, held under lock and key, unable to free themselves. It's not possible to be neutral. Each of us is in one kingdom or the other. And if we're, with, if we're not with Jesus, we're on the losing side, the eternally losing side. And we mustn't miss the end of verse 23. He who does not gather with me scatters. What does that mean? Well, back in chapter 10, Jesus sent his followers to go and gather a harvest, to gather men and women into God's kingdom. And here Jesus says, some of you think that what you do with me is just a personal matter. It doesn't affect anyone else. But you're wrong. If you're not active in gathering in my harvest, then you are scattering. You're working against my harvest. When it comes to the harvest of souls, no one sits idly by, just watching the action. Those who are not gathering are actually opposing the work of harvesting. Sometimes parents are keen for their kids to go along to church. Maybe they'll even take their kids along to church, but they'll make no commitment to Christ themselves. Maybe you fall into that category. Maybe you imagine your lack of commitment to Jesus is just a personal matter. It has no influence on your family. But you're wrong. Oh sure, you may not be telling them that Christianity is false, but you are leading them to believe Christianity is something we can play around with. We can take it or leave it. It's no big deal. It's nothing to get too excited about. If you're like that, then Jesus says you are scattering. You're working against his harvesters. You're influencing your family away from God's eternal kingdom. So your lack of commitment to Jesus is not just a personal matter. You are doing your family an eternal disservice. We must choose a side. Neutrality is impossible. Jesus drives this home with another picture, the picture of the empty house, teaching us that trying to be neutral leads to disaster. We've said there is no fence to sit on, but what if we try to sit on the fence? Look at verse 24. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. In the context here, Jesus is referring to those who experience an exorcism but don't go on to turn their lives over to Jesus. In the absence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, they will not stay empty. Another spirit will come to dwell in the empty place. That's the meaning specific to this context. But Jesus' point certainly has a wider application. 
don't imagine you can leave your soul as a vacuum. Some of you here this morning have been exposed to the truth about Jesus. Maybe you've grown up in the church, or you've been attending the church for years. And there's a sense in which you've benefited from the experience you've had. Maybe your life hasn't taken some of the foolish turns it might have taken if you hadn't been exposed to biblical wisdom. Maybe some of the atmosphere of church has rubbed off on you. And so you try to live by some of the useful principles you've heard in church. But you're holding back from turning your life over to Jesus. You're imagining that you can, spiritually speaking, live as an empty house. You believe you can be spiritually unoccupied. Well, Jesus says to you, trying to be neutral leads to disaster. Your soul or my soul cannot stay as a vacuum. We're not made that way. The Bible describes our bodies as temples. And we will never be empty temples. We will either be indwelt and guided and prompted by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who loves us and will lead us to eternity in God's presence, or we will be indwelt, guided, and directed by another Spirit who is not holy, who does not love us, and who in fact has no other aim than to drag us with him to hell. Maybe at this point you're thinking, well, he's being melodramatic up there. I'm not demon-possessed. I'm not talking here about demon possession in the way we've often seen it in Luke. I'm not talking about being physically violent and deranged. I'm talking about who is the captain of our soul. You and I will never be captains of our own souls. Scripture is clear. If Jesus is not at the helm then another spiritual power will be directing our lives. One that does not have our interests at heart. Listen to how the risen Jesus puts it to the Apostle Paul. In the book of Acts, Jesus commissions Paul as his gospel messenger to the nations. And he says, I am sending you to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Being under Satan's power doesn't usually mean we're going to be running wild and naked, foaming at the mouth, like the man who lived among the tombs back in chapter 8. It can end up like that, but Satan does not usually go that far. He doesn't usually have to. All Satan needs is for men and women to think they can be empty spiritual houses. All he needs is for them to be blissfully unaware that they desperately need freedom. They desperately need deliverance from his power. Being exposed to church and to Christian truth will ultimately do you no good whatsoever unless you go on to submit to Jesus as your captain and your king. And in fact, if you hold back from Jesus... Your exposure to the truth will make your experience worse in the long run. You'll become hardened against the truth. You'll think you've heard it all often enough. 
You've tried it. And so eventually you'll just move on. And in the end, you might find yourself gospel proof. The day may come when the mention of heaven and hell doesn't even raise your eyebrows anymore. Trying to be neutral leads to disaster. If we are not in the light, then we're in darkness. If we're not under God's power, we're under Satan's power. However comfortable we might be feeling. We must choose a side. Neutrality is impossible. Then in verses 27 to 36, Jesus says, We have no excuse for failing to choose correctly. In the second half of this passage, Jesus again uses two pictures. First, in verses 27 to 32, the witnesses for the prosecution teaching us that Jesus' message is the only sign we need. Look at verse 27. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign. But none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. Maybe this woman in the crowd who stands up wants to reassure Jesus that the crowd are favorable to him. We think you're a wonderful man, Jesus. Blessed is the mother who gave you birth. But whatever this woman's motivation, Jesus is not going to be bowled over by compliments. A preacher once told me how he responds to compliments about his sermons. If someone comes up to him and says, Great sermon, Pastor. He replies, We'll see. In other words, that pastor is not so interested in getting compliments at the back of church. He's interested in whether his congregation will obey God's word. That's the true test of how great they think the sermon was. And Jesus is making a similar point here. I appreciate your respects to my mother, he says. And I appreciate that by praising her, you're paying me a compliment. But what I really want is for you to listen to my word, the word of God, and obey it. This is a point Jesus has made several times already in Luke's Gospel. And here it leads them to challenge those who are always holding out for bigger, better signs before they'll commit themselves to him. This section of the crowd has been mentioned back in verse 16. After watching Jesus perform a sign of his power and authority, driving out a demon, we were told immediately that some in the crowd tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. 
But Jesus' ministry has been chock full of amazing signs from heaven. The fact that these people are asking for more is an indication they'll never be satisfied. They'll never have enough evidence to accept Jesus as king. No miracle will ever convince them of his divine authority. Their demand for more signs is just an excuse for failing to commit themselves. And so now Jesus paints a picture that's designed to sting them awake spiritually. He presents two witnesses for the prosecution. First, the people of Nineveh. We're probably familiar with the story of Jonah and the Ninevites. Nineveh was a pagan city. In fact, a notoriously wicked pagan city. And yet, rather than wiping the city out, God gave them an opportunity to turn from their sin. He sent them a preacher, Jonah. When Jonah finally arrived in Nineveh via the belly of the fish, we're told that on the first day Jonah began to preach, the Ninevites believed God. They acknowledged their sin. They called urgently on God for forgiveness. And we're told God saw and he had compassion. The city was spared. It was all as easy as that. But here Jesus says to the crowds in Israel in verse 32, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. The Ninevites didn't ask for any miracles. They didn't say, well, we'll listen to you, Jonah, but you'd better heal a few people too. Turn some water into wine. Calm a few storms for us. Otherwise, we're not going to take you seriously. In fact, it's unlikely they even knew about his miraculous rescue with the fish. The sea was a long way from Nineveh. The only sign the Ninevites asked for and the only sign they got was Jonah's preaching. But that was enough for them. They didn't even need to hear it twice. On the first day, they heard the word of God and obeyed it. And that's why they'll stand up and condemn those who are always asking for bigger and better signs from God. Jesus' message is the only sign we need. And in these verses, Jesus mentions another witness for the prosecution, the Queen of the South in verse 31, maybe better known as the Queen of Sheba. King Solomon was another preacher. He preached God's wisdom. Many of his proverbs are preserved for us in the book of Proverbs. And the wisdom he preached was a specific kind of wisdom. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The wisdom Solomon preached was centered on knowing and honoring God. And the Queen of Sheba responded to it. Verse 31 says, The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. Jesus, remember, is speaking to a largely Jewish audience. And he says, these Gentiles had a better grasp on things than you do. 
they didn't keep holding out for more proof. They took God at his word and they made the appropriate response. Jesus says to this crowd, you people are determined never to be convinced. You'll always have one more excuse for failing to believe and obey. But in reality, Jesus says, you have no excuse. These Gentiles will rise up and condemn you. Maybe you've begun dipping your toe into Christian things. Or maybe you've grown up around Christian things. But your attitude is a bit like these crowds around Jesus. You're avoiding making a decision. And your excuse is that you need more evidence. Or you need God to be clearer. Maybe you need him to give you some personal sign of his existence. And please don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say. It's, we would be foolish to jump into something we didn't understand. But be careful. We can even deceive ourselves in this. Insisting on more evidence can just be a smokescreen for our rebellion against God. Our refusal to believe. So ask yourself, do I understand the basic message of the gospel? The message that says I'm sinful, alienated from God, deserving of eternal punishment. But God in his grace has provided a substitute, his son who died in my place, to pay for my sin and buy me back for God. If I will trust that his death was for me, if I will turn my life over to him, and I'm forgiven by God and reconciled to God. If you can grasp that simple message of good news, then you have no excuse for holding out. When you stand before God, he will not ask how many miracles you saw. He will not ask how many presentations you heard about proof for Jesus' resurrection. God's going to be interested in what you did with the good news about Jesus. It's the only sign that we need. If we've been exposed to that simple, life-altering message, then we have no excuse for failing to choose correctly. And at this point you might say, well, I think you're being too harsh. I do understand the gospel, but there's so much else I don't understand. It doesn't feel safe to commit myself without knowing more. If that's your question, then Jesus addresses it in our last section. In verses 33 to 36, he gives the picture of the lamp, teaching us that when we accept Jesus' message, the light streams in. Verse 33, Jesus says, No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are bad, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. 
Now, first reading, these verses seem a little bit obscure. But if we follow them through, then Jesus' point does come across. In verse 33, Jesus mentions a lamp on a stand that all can see. Jesus used the same picture back in chapter 8. There he was referring to his own teaching as a lamp. And he followed it up by saying, consider carefully how you listen. So when Jesus uses the lamp again here, in a context dealing with hearing God's word, it's best to take it as another reference to Jesus' public teaching. And the point is, he is not being secretive. He announces the news to everyone who will listen. He is God's way of salvation. That's the meaning of the lamp on a stand in verse 33. Then in verse 34, Jesus says, your eye is the lamp of your body. In other words, what you take in through your eye is then beamed onwards to the rest of your body. If you take in good stuff, light, then your whole body will be full of light. The alternative is to take in darkness and then be full of darkness. And if we remember that Jesus is talking about his teaching, then his point is something like this. My teaching is clear. Don't keep holding out for the day you understand everything before you'll respond. No, respond to what is clear. And then the rest will become clear. Your body will be full of light. On the other hand, Jesus says, if you refuse the light I'm holding out to you, then nothing's ever going to become clear to you. When we accept Jesus' message, the light streams in. This is a New Testament principle. We're responsible to respond to the light we have. Failure to do that is a sign of rebellion. But if we will accept and act on what we understand, we're showing faith. And that faith in God's word, however small, will lead to more light streaming in. We have no excuse for failing to choose correctly. One of the greatest theologians of the last century was asked to sum up the greatest truth he had learned. Now this was a man who had written a summary of Christian doctrine that ran to 13 volumes. There wasn't much that he hadn't thought about. But this was his answer. The greatest truth I've learned? Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells us we are in a desperate situation. But Jesus loves us. And he has acted to save us. If we can grasp that, we have no excuse for failing to choose correctly. So if you're not a Christian, you don't need another sermon. You don't need another course. You don't need a PhD in how science relates to creation. You don't need a debate about men and women's roles. Or why Christians believe this or that about sex outside marriage or homosexuality. Those are all important questions, but they can all too easily be used as smoke screens, questions to hide behind so that we can avoid making any commitment. 
you and I need to respond to the simple truth that Jesus died and rose for our salvation. Take that light on board and you'll begin to see the other stuff clearly. Someone has described it like a pebble being thrown into a pond. The ripples stretch wider and wider from the center right out to the edges of the pond. Jesus' death and resurrection is the center of Christianity. Already Jesus has been talking about it in Luke's Gospel. He explained the meaning of his death and resurrection well before it happened. It was for our salvation. So when you consider the Christian faith, don't start out at the edges. Start at the center. And the center is crystal clear. Respond by accepting the good news of deliverance, new life through the cross. And in due course, the ripples from that will take care of the other stuff. Let's pray for God to help us to do that. Lord God, will you help us? Will you show us that the benefits of coming to Jesus are immeasurable? Will you show us too that the consequences of rejecting him are terrible? We thank you, Father, for your mercy. However long we might have resisted you, we have this moment to respond to you. Nothing else is guaranteed for us, but we have this moment of your grace. So will you melt our hard hearts? Will you give us ears in this moment to hear the voice of Jesus? And will you also give us the courage and the faith to respond to him? Amen. We have an opportunity to respond now as we sing above the voice.